There are two Bible readings this morning. The first is from Matthew 6. Verse 12 says, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And verses 14 and 15, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And the second reading is from Psalms 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. It's good to see you all. If I haven't met you before, I'm Ben. I'm the community pastor here, and a massive welcome to all of you guys online with us as well today. And we're in the second last week of our series, How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People. Each week, we've been going line by line through the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and so on, until we come to today's line, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. I wonder how that line strikes you, because that's a prayer of confession. That's an acknowledgement, I am a sinner, and I am in need of forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. I wonder how that feels for you. Because I think it's safe to say that today, culturally speaking, that's not a popular line. It's not popular to say that we are sinners worthy of judgment and in need of God's forgiveness. I've got a story along those lines. I remember when I was in high school and I I first started following Jesus and I was talking to one of my non-Christian friends about my new faith. And uh, she was asking me why I was a Christian. I was telling her, well, I'm just amazed by God. I'm, I'm a sinner. I've done so many things wrong. I'm worthy of judgment. But God, by sheer grace, has, has forgiven me and I have relationship with Him now. And I was just so joyful when I was sharing this with her and I thought she'd feel it. But as I looked at her face, it was in a frown. She was actually horrified. She looked at me and she said, Ben, you're a good person. You're not going to hell. You're a good person. How can you believe this? What to me was beautiful news for her was horrifying, even oppressive. Is that true? Is confession an oppressive thing? Is it part of a backwards spirituality? Or is it part of a healthy spirituality? If you're anything like me, you don't like to admit you're wrong the best of times, not even to ourselves, 
not to others and, and let alone God. I wonder if you can bring to mind a recent time where someone outside of your family has come and apologized to you and asked for forgiveness. If you're anything like me, I, nothing came to my mind that easily. I think it's rare that people just come up to us, apologize, ask for forgiveness. We don't like to admit we're wrong. I think most people in Australia would be happy to admit they're imperfect, that we're flawed, but none of us are perfect. But it's one thing to say that, and it's another thing to go to someone and to confess a specific wrong you've done to them and to ask them humbly for forgiveness. And it's another thing altogether to, to tell someone that actually before God, they've actually committed that wrong. And they've offended Him and they need to ask Him for forgiveness. Many people in our culture hear that as oppressive. In fact, it, it goes against our cultural mantra, which says, be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. It's in the Disney movies. It's in our culture. It's among the younger generations, people like my age. And if you believe in this be true to yourself statement, it makes confession irrelevant. Because if I'm being true to myself, and let's face it, all of us would love nothing more than to be true to ourselves and every desire that we have at any moment, then I'm never really in the wrong. I'm just being true to myself. If young people want to sleep with others and it's all consensual, it'd be wrong to say that they need to confess something to God. I mean, they're just being true to themselves. If someone wants to not give away their money to the poor, I think people might think that's not the greatest thing, but they certainly have nothing to confess to God. I mean, it's their money, it's their life. The individual has the right to decide what is right and wrong for them. Be true to yourself. If we really believe in the motto, be true to yourself, then confession becomes more than just irrelevant, it becomes oppressive. But is that true? Is the act of confession just a negative thing? Is it oppressive? Is it part of an unhealthy and a backward spirituality, self-degrading? Have I just been brainwashed into thinking I'm a bad person and now I'm stuck in a joyless religion because of it? It's important for us to think about because Jesus believed that it was part of the truly human life, a whole and a happy life. He believed that. He taught us to pray it. So are we missing out on something if we do not practice confession? Let's take a look at what the Bible teaches about the prayer of confession. And we're going to start by looking at Psalm 130 because it in itself is an example of a prayer of confession. We're going to open that up and we're going to look at why the Bible, why God believes confession is good for us. Why confession is good for us. And the first thing that we see in Psalm 130 is that confession grounds us. Confession grounds us in reality. Our cultural mantra, be true to yourself, is fundamentally flawed because it believes that people are fundamentally good. And that's a naive view of humanity. If we look around, humans could commit atrocities all the time, and it's not enough to just say that they weren't nurtured the right way. There's something fundamentally flawed about us. But neither does the Bible say that we are just 
completely and totally evil and hell-bent. I think that's what some people think that the Bible teaches, but that's not true, and that's not realistic either, because we see human beings do good as well. The Bible teaches that we are a mixture of good and evil. In Genesis 1 to 3, we're shown that we're created in the image of a good God, but that as we rejected Him, evil tainted our humanity. The Bible teaches us that we are the image, the reflection of the good God, but just like a mirror that has been smashed, it's been smashed by sin, there's some fragments that are intact, but there are cracks everywhere, there are pieces in the ground, and it's ultimately irreparable in our own strength. We are a mixture of good and evil. It's a more nuanced view of humanity. And this is why confession is such a key part of biblical spirituality. In Psalm 130, the writer prays, he says, Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? I want you to imagine that this book that I'm holding is, contains a record of my sins. And imagine I only committed four wrongs each day. I said something wrong, a harsh word. I thought something wrong, something judgmental. I did something wrong, and I didn't do something that I should have done. Just four times a day. I think that's a pretty good day, a pretty good life just to get away with only four wrongs a day. Now, over the course of a year, I will have committed over a thousand sins. I've got it written down here. 1,460 sins. By the time I'm 75, this book would be filled with 100,000 wrongs that I've committed. And that's if I lived a pretty good life. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? If God opened this up in His law court, I would not be able to stand there self-justified before Him. Now, if our youth ministry leader, Nathaniel, stood before God's law court, (laughs) he's got a lot to answer for, that guy. About half of this are all the pranks he's done to me in my office every week. (laughs) And I just added another sin, the sin of pride to my record, I think. But if our record books are made into movies of our lives, if we... Everything we've done, every secret thing we thought, said, was made into a movie, and I said, it's going to be screened here at church. I think if we're honest, none of us would be comfortable. I'd be squirming in my seat. I'd probably get a plane ticket, move somewhere else, you know? None of us are fundamentally good. We are fundamentally flawed, and confession grounds us. It helps us to acknowledge reality, and Israel, back in the Old Testament, was confronted with this reality day after day in the temple rituals. Day after day, they were confronted with the cost of their sin because they would have to give something costly to to pay a penalty for their crime against God or their crime against others. What they would have to do is, if they had enough money, they would have to buy an animal. And depending on how rich they were or what they committed against others was what they had to get. They'd buy an animal, they'd bring it before the temple, and the priest would slaughter the animal and sprinkle its blood over the altar. And the reason it was such a a bloody ritual is because blood represented the very life of a creature. 
It was something costly. It was a costly symbol. Leviticus 17.11 says, God says, The life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. So life is given by God, by a holy God, and therefore it's holy, it's sacred, it's costly. And the shedding of blood reminded Israel of the debt they owed others, and especially to God for their wrongs. Confession is good for us because it promotes self-awareness. It, it leads us out of self-deception, and it grounds us in the reality that we are flawed, that we are a mixture of good and evil. It creates humility, and it grounds us in reality. And it is only when we live in reality that we can deal with the issues that we have in life. That's the first point that we see from Psalm 130. Confession grounds us. The second thing Psalm 130 uh, teaches is that confession restores relationship. Confession is a restorative power. When we go up to someone we have wronged and, and we humbly confess that wrong to them and ask for their forgiveness, we're creating opportunities for restoration. We're creating opportunities for reconciliation. Now, that person can still choose not to forgive us, or they can choose to forgive us, but not to have relationship. But when it comes to God, confession is always restorative. That's the beautiful thing. And that's why confession isn't an oppressive practice to God. Because God never oppresses us in response. He always responds with the warmth of forgiveness. This is what the psalmist this is what gave the psalmist the boldness to acknowledge reality and confess his evil to God. Because he knew that with you, God, there is forgiveness. With you, there is forgiveness. How did he know this? Well, they didn't have Jesus back then. But God did tell Israel about who he was as a person. One of those instances comes in Exodus 34, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, which in Hebrew is Yahweh, Yahweh, or actually also means I am, I am the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. The writer of the psalm approached God with his sin because he believed God loves to forgive. King David also knew this. And after he finally faced up to the fact that he'd murdered a man and stolen his wife from him, he cried out these words to God, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. The psalmist, King David, knew that confession restores relationship with God. The bloody sacrifices that they saw at the temple reminded them of this reality, and it pointed forward to something else. It pointed forward to a greater reality, something costly enough to pay our sin debts once and for all. Hebrews 7 verse 27 says that He, Jesus, sacrificed for their sins once and for all when He offered himself. This is why Jesus says in the Lord's Supper, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out 
the many for the forgiveness of sins. Because the very next day, he was going to act as a sacrifice. His blood was going to be shed on the cross. And it would be the payment that would release us from a debt we could never repay. Jesus came to pay a debt that he did not owe to free people who could never repay it. The reality is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3. But the good news is that all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption, through the payment that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood. We can confidently ask God to pardon our debts because He has personally paid them in Jesus. I really want us to take that home today, church. We can confidently approach God and confess and ask Him to pardon every debt, past, present, and future, because He has already personally paid them in Jesus. When we confess our sins to God, we come knowing that Jesus has absorbed the cost for them at the cross. This is why we sing, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Confession restores relationship, especially with God. And because of Jesus, we know that our sincere confessions to God will always be met with heartfelt, sincere, joyful forgiveness. Psalm 130 shows us that confession grounds us, that confession restores relationship. And in the remaining verse, it shows us that confession leads to confidence. Confession leads to confidence. Now, I think that's kind of counterintuitive, especially for our culture, because I think it'd be easier to think, okay, it's kind of a negative practice. You're focusing on depressing realities. Isn't this kind of self-degrading? But actually, it's the opposite. When you confess your sins to God and you're real with who you are before Him and you receive His real forgiveness and love, it leads to confidence. This is what happened for the psalmist in Psalm 130. This is how he reacts to God's forgiveness. He says, with you, there is forgiveness, and this gives him confidence to serve God. He says, so that we can, with reverence, with awe, serve you. And he isn't afraid to see God face to face anymore. He doesn't believe that when God returns, he will meet his judge, but he believes he will meet his ally. He says, I wait for the Lord with my whole being. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than the watchmen who surrounded Jerusalem and guarded Jerusalem waited for their shift to end as the sun rose. He wanted to see God. He was excited to see the one who loved his soul and forgave him all his debts. And God's forgiveness gave him the confidence to share the gospel with others, to share good news with others, to tell them to turn to God and to experience what he had experienced. He says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Confession le leads to confidence. Timothy Keller once said something beautiful. He said, to be loved, but not fully known as comforting, but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and truly loved 
is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Confession fortifies us. Confession gives us confidence. Confession, when we receive God's forgiveness in that way, it leads us to worship Him. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. When you know that the judge of all the earth, the ultimate authority, fully pardons your debt, fully cleanses your life, fully frees you from everything you've done and everything you will do. It gives you confidence. It gives you freedom. It gives you joy. I remember experiencing that back in high school when I first realized the first time who Jesus really was and I received him. It gave me confidence because at first I was scared of God and I was always trying to please him. Then I traded that for fear of people, and I was always trying to please them. But when I heard that God had personally paid my debt in Jesus, that He had forgiven me, that He loved me, that He accepted me, it gave me confidence. I was able to return to school following Jesus, knowing, known as a Christ follower, and able to do what I believe what was good and right. He freed me from my fear of others. Confession leads to confidence. The last reason it's part of a healthy prayer life is that confession breeds forgiveness. Confession breeds forgiveness. You see, after Jesus finished his prayer in Matthew 6, this is the only line that he revisits. He circles straight back the idea of confession and forgiveness again. So in verse 12, he prayed, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Then after the prayer, he comes back to that and he says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now that's confronting. Jesus says God will not forgive us if we will not forgive others. That's hard. Now, we're not going to spend much time talking through the complexities of forgiveness because we know that there's complexities to it. And sometimes forgiveness is a process of continually forgiving again and again and again until you finally release that person. So we're not pretending that it's simplistic or easy all the time. But I don't think we really respect what Jesus says here by trying to explain it away. He says, if you do not forgive others their sins your Father will not forgive your sins. And I think Jesus means what He says. But we do need to understand why He says this. He's not saying this because our willingness to forgive is the basis for God's forgiveness of us. But rather because our willingness to forgive is the evidence of a true confession to God that received true forgiveness from God. So Jesus does not say, forgive us our debts because we have forgiven others. We've done enough to deserve this. It's silly to think like that. 
We just talked about the costliness of Jesus' death, that that was what was needed to pay us in debt to God. We can't dishonor that. That's what secures God's forgiveness for us. But the reason Jesus is so strong on this is because confession, when it receives forgiveness, can't be kept in. It must flow out. Our willingness to forgive others is the evidence that we actually have received and experienced the forgiveness Jesus secured through his death. And this actually makes sense. Jesus proved this through a masterful story that he told in Matthew chapter 18. He tells a story about this king who had this large kingdom, and he had this high official in his court. He was a servant of the king. And this servant owed the king a ton of money, like in today's terms, millions if not billions and billions of dollars. And so the king calls him to account. He calls him in to settle the debts, and he tells the servant, it's time to pay up. You need to repay what you owe. But the servant gets down on his knees, and he cries out, and he says, please, please have mercy on me. Give me a chance. I'll pay this back. Just, just give me some time. And something switches in the king's heart in that moment. He feels compassion. He feels pity for the servant. And so he says, you know what? Forgive his debts. Wipe it clean. I'll personally absorb them. Can you imagine how that servant must have been feeling as he walked out? So joyful, so amazed that the king would forgive him these billions and billions of dollars of debt, something that he could not, not realistically repay. And later on in the story Jesus is telling, he walks into the streets and, and he sees another one of his fellow servants, this, a second servant. And he realizes that this servant owes him about $10,000. And so he goes up to him and he says, hey, pay what you owe. And this person gets down on his knees and cries up and please give me a little bit of time. I need to put food on the table for the family. Just give me a chance to pay this back. And what the first servant does is shocking. He, he grabs the man, he strangles him, and he demands that he pays back the debt that he owes him. And he asks the guard to take him to prison until he should repay his debt. Now, he didn't realize that there were some servants nearby who overheard this, who saw this, and they were horrified. So they went back to the king. They told him what had happened. And the king calls the first servant back in, and he says, you wicked servant. I forgave you millions, billions of dollars of debt, and you squabbled over a few grand? Take him to prison until he shall repay every last penny that he owes me. Isn't that shocking? But Jesus tells that to illustrate the forgiveness that we have received from God. That we have received millions, billions of dollars of forgiveness. Jesus gave his own life. That's what it cost him. That's the pain he went through for us to be made right with God. And for us to refuse to forgive the debts of others is horrifying in God's eyes. It's shocking. It's only a few thousand dollars compared to the millions and billions we have been forgiven. That illustrates why forgiven people forgive people. We don't earn God's forgiveness through our forgiveness of others. But if we really have experienced what Jesus has done, we cannot help but ultimately forgive others their debts. Forgiven people forgive people. Confession breeds forgiveness. Because when we, when we receive God's forgiveness, it makes us more forgiving people too. So do you see the goodness 
of confession. I hope you see the goodness of it. That this is healthy spirituality. This is truly humanizing. This is not an oppressive practice. Confession grounds us in reality. Confession is restoring. It restores relationships. Confession leads to confidence. And confession breeds forgiveness. Jesus taught us to practice confession when he prayed, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And I want to ask you this morning, church, if you will make confession part of your prayer life. You'll have an opportunity to start that practice today because at the end of today, I'm going to give us a minute to just privately, quietly pray to God and we can confess and tell God if there's anything on our hearts. But I just want to ask you right now, I just want you to think for a moment. Is there something in your life that you know that you need to confess to God? Is there something in your life that you know is not right with God? Maybe there's a relationship that comes to mind. Is there somebody that you need to apologize to? Is there somebody that you need to confess to personally and ask for their forgiveness? Perhaps after the service today, making a call or visiting them. And if you're not a Christian here today, will you acknowledge the reality that before God, you cannot stand? If He took up a record book, you would not be able to stand before Him. Will you acknowledge that to God? Because that's not oppressive, that leads to life. Because God loves to forgive those who come to Him. God loves to set you free if you will come and come as you are to Him and confess your sins to Him. Wouldn't it be wonderful, church, if we could walk out of here today feeling free and confident because we know we are personally right with God? Wouldn't it be beautiful if some relationships were restored today? Wouldn't it be amazing if we had the courage to face our darkest places and find that God's smile is not turned to a frown, but that His arms of forgiveness remain open to us if you're ready, we're going to spend some time in confession now. And I, I know that confession is painful at times, but it's part of a healthy human life. And the truth is, we can ask God to pardon our debts with confidence because He has personally fully paid them in Jesus. So let's spend some time in prayer now. I'm going to start and then I'll give us some space to personally pray to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. We thank you for Jesus. You didn't minimize our wrongs. You were honest with us. But where our sin abounds, your grace has abounded all the more. Jesus, thank you for giving your life up at the cross to pay the payment, the debt that we owe for our wrongs to one another, to the creation, to you, God. Lord, please give us confidence in your love today. Give us confidence in Jesus. Help us, Lord, to embrace confession, to do that painful work because it leads to confidence. It leads to life with you. Jesus, we're going to spend a moment now and I just ask Holy Spirit, that you would be working in each person's heart here and online, 
that you would be bringing up for them, anything that they might want to confess to you or bring to you. And I pray that you just give them the words to pray to you right now. We're just going to take one minute, Lord, to pray to you. like the father with the prodigal son you embrace us put a robe on our shoulders we love you Lord help us Lord to be a people who acknowledge our sin to you who confess to you help us to be a people who are forgiving to be a restorative people and we pray that as we do this Lord as we embrace confession and forgiveness that your kingdom would come and your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Church, would you please stand with me? We're going to recite the Lord's Prayer together this morning. We're going to pray that together. So I'll lead us and please pray along with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Thanks, church.